0: Welcome in another edition OutKick the Culture Podcast. I'm Jason Martin, your host at J Mart Outkick on the tweets. You can also find me at jmart100 on Facebook. Even though I don't really use it all that much, I do tweet out some articles from there. or Actually, I guess I just post some articles from there. I tweet out articles at Twitter. That's how these things typically work. Big show, as usual today. A lot of things going on in pop culture. I wasn't going to comment on this again, but this dumbass hashtag no confederate nonsense that broke on Sunday night has raised my ire again. I'm gonna not really rehash, but go back over a few of the points that I made about Benioff and Weiss's new effort for HBO and why everybody that's up in arms about this needs to really calm down and check themselves, at least for the time being. We'll get to that. Also, going to talk Suits today, USA Network's show that is still chugging along years after it began with the exact same formula it had from the very beginning. Nothing has changed and everybody continues to watch. We'll talk about how that works and why it has worked for that show. Also, shows you can pick up in midstream, dramas in particular, where you get questions when something's been a couple of seasons in and maybe you heard the first season wasn't that good and you find out, hey, this show got really good. It's like, can I skip that bad season and start with the next ones? There are a few examples of that even currently on TV. Uh, or ones that just ended, where the argument can be made either way. And I'll try to make it both ways, so you'll want to stick around for that as well. And who knows what else, because, again, don't really follow this thing with a whole bunch of notes. But, also coming up later on, by the way, my full review of Wet Hot American Summer 10 Years Later, which hit Netflix today, got a chance to screen that earlier this week. It's definitely a love or hate kind of thing, I think, for most people. But I put myself in the love camp, at least to some extent. I'm not sure I'm as high on it as some, but I'm certainly a lot higher on it than those that can't get past the campy aspect and just have fun with their lives. So we'll have some heavy stuff today. We'll have some lighter stuff today might also suggest a podcast that it's been out for about a year but I just discovered it for true crime fans might get into that a little bit as well. So plenty to get to but and this is not just a discussion about Game of Thrones. We're gonna lead off with Game of Thrones. Because that episode, The Queen's Justice, from this past Sunday, third episode of the seventh season, to me was one of the three best episodes in the entire series, along with Blackwater, which was the ninth episode of season two, and The Winds of Winter, which was last year's season finale for season six. You could also put maybe Hardhome in there. That's probably up there. And there are some others. If you have thoughts on your top three, I asked this on Twitter days ago but I'll ask it again here at jmartoutkick or jmartclone at com. if you want to email me tell me what yours are and why I'd be curious to know because I'm sure I would agree with you even though I might not put them quite as high it would just kind of remind me we need to come up with a great Game of Thrones playlist like the 10 episodes that if you just wanted the 10 best episodes of Game of Thrones when this thing is all said and done you already know the story so you don't need all of the context what would those 10 episodes be and something I want to get into in a future episode, and I you know, I actually had planned to do this from week one when I was trying to set this show up, and we never got to it, and then we haven't gotten to it at any point since, is there are a lot of shows out there that go way too long and have to fill a ton of time in each season with dead episodes because they have to fill you know, 24 episodes of a contract or an agreement with a network for a year. A lot of them are sitcoms, but there are sitcoms with congruent storylines that have throwaway episodes. And there are good throwaway episodes, and then there are really bad throwaway episodes, but there needs to become a system, and maybe this is something that we can start to do. It takes time to do this, but if you can come up with a playlist for a show that includes all the stuff that's important to the characters, and maybe the best 15 standalone episodes, you would probably think that those shows are 7,000 times better if you had not had to watch all of the other fluff I think one of the big examples of that might be How I Met Your Mother, and we will use that as the prime example when we get to this. If you just took all of the stuff that's important to the story and then the best of the standalones, the ducky tie, for instance, and things like that, I feel like that show would have been better off. Also would have been better off if they hadn't completely screwed that ending, but that's a a different story for a different day. The Queen's Justice this past Sunday. One of the best episodes in Game of Thrones series history, Jon Snow meets Daenerys Targaryen. It wasn't necessarily exciting, but it did illuminate. I think that's the most likable Jon has been in a while. And I've never been somebody that has bought into Daenerys' claim for the throne relative just to the idea that it's her birthright. Like She's been pretty good in the stuff that she has actually done. That's why somebody like Lord Varys, for instance, would choose to follow her. But just assuming everyone's going to bend the knee to her, that's where, to me, it kind of falls short. And I've never been the biggest fan of that story. I'm not a big Dragon fan anyway, honestly. So I like other stuff. I've liked Danny a lot better now that Tyrion's around her because Tyrion's my favorite character on the show, along with, I guess, Lyanna Mormont, really, who's a TV creation, but has been really, really good. And the Hound is right there with all with those two as well. But so much happened in this episode, and a lot of it was dialogue. Now, we did get that kind of foreshadowed battle there towards the end, and we saw Tyrell and how that came to an end for her at the end of the episode with Jaime Lannister and Cersei, and this is where we get into the larger discussion. This is past Game of Thrones. This is what I teased on Twitter about what we were going to say about Game of Thrones, and this is not throne specific. This is television as a whole. This is the penultimate season of Game of Thrones. Penultimate means next to last. I use that term a lot. Sometimes I don't actually describe it. One thing I told you from the from the outset of this podcast, I'm not going to treat you like you're an idiot. I'm going to treat you like you're just as intelligent on all this stuff as me and that some stuff, if you do get lost, you can go find it out. You can go you know, search it out in a dictionary or whatever, but I assume most of you know what I'm talking about. If I come across in a negative way, just tweet me and tell me, hey, I didn't understand this, and I'll be glad to explain it to you. But I am taking my audience as people that actually get it and can think for themselves and have their own opinions. Look, I have had more people tell me I'm wrong about Ozark than have told me I'm right about it. I love that. I'm so happy about it. One, because it means a lot of people like the show that didn't really do it for me to the same degree. Like I said, I didn't hate it. I just said it was okay. But it didn't do for me what it did for a lot of you out there, but I'm so glad that it did that for you guys because again, I don't want you to waste your time watching ten hours of a drama that doesn't pay off. I'm super happy that you guys dug it. We just agreed to disagree on this one, and guess what that's okay in a world where extremes are the only thing that seem to be okay, and if you don't agree with me, then I need to hate you and your family and everybody that you've ever known that's just not how the way i that's not the way I operate so the Ozark thing just kind of you know played into it. So if I do say something you disagree with, by all means, at jmart.kick or jmartclone at gmail.com. You just fire off at me at it will. It's completely okay. But this being the next to last season, the penultimate, as I said, season of Game of Thrones, we also just experienced another penultimate season with the Americans on FX a couple of months ago. And I've said a couple of different times over the six weeks of this podcast, that it's the weakest season of the Americans. And honestly, the penultimate season of a drama in particular often tends to be the worst season of that drama, even though the penultimate episode of a respective season often turns out to be the best episode of that season. Another argument I got into, and actually got into this argument, with Jeff Schwartz, who's been co-hosting with me, as you've heard these last few days, on Outkick the Coverage on Fox Sports Radio. He and his brother huge Game of Thrones fans. And he said the Battle of Bastards is one of his favorite episodes, or I think he said it was his favorite episode. And I said I thought it was overrated. And the reason why is because it provided exactly what I expected and nothing more. That was the ultimate fan service. That was the Entourage movie version of Game of Thrones. It was time to kill Ramsay Bolton off. They had made him such a villain that they had to find a way to get him off the show and give everyone a chance to exhale and applaud. And that's what they did. But they did nothing else. There was nothing surprising about it. There was nothing stellar about the dialogue. There wasn't much dialogue in the episode. Action sort of runs together for me, especially when it's swords and it's moving as fast as this stuff did. Was it a good episode? Did I applaud? Yeah, I didn't think it was bad. But to call that one of the best episodes, I thought was completely wrong because there was nothing that I did not expect, did not anticipate, did not predict about that episode. It was pure red meat. And, and Jeff actually said, you know, I like steak too, it's predictable, but I still like it. Well, one, I didn't say I didn't like the Battle of Bastards. I just didn't think it was nearly as good as the episode that followed it, which was last year's season finale, The Winds of Winter, where we did get some surprises in the way in which Cersei ended up on the Iron Throne, and the way in which so much went wrong for the good guys, after everything went right for the good guys the week before. Maybe The Winds of Winter was so much better because everyone sort of was able to just enjoy with a smile on their face an entire hour the week before that was situated in such a way for that to make sense. But it was the Winds of Winter that really stood out as the better episode because it was surprising. But a penultimate episode of a season is usually where the drama happens because the season finale needs to be your reward. Here's a pro wrestling analogy for you. For a long time, WrestleMania was the reward for the fans for a year of sticking with Vince McMahon and WWE. Like That's when the babyfaces would win. That's when the heroes would vanquish the tyrants. That's when your favorite guy was going to walk away with that championship. For a long time, babyfaces won every main event at WrestleMania. I believe 16 was actually the first time that a heel won when Triple H won the Fatal 4-Way. And then since then, it's kind of not gone that way. It's changed, but it's still been more babyface-oriented because WrestleMania is a fan show. It's also a casual fan show in that you bring in celebrities and music acts and all of these people that make sense on a global scale, and you don't really want to make those casual fans feel bad. You want to give them something to get excited about. So you give them Jon Snow, destroying Ramsey Bolton. WrestleMania is the Battle of the Bastards. The rest of the year is when you're actually telling your stories, and your fiscal year and your creative year starts again the day after WrestleMania. In television, the penultimate episode needs to lead to that WrestleMania, to that relief in a drama. So the penultimate episode then has to be almost excruciating most of the time. They went in reverse on Game of Thrones, and I thought it worked out because I don't think Game of Thrones is a happy ending story. We discussed that last week on this very show. Penultimate episode is when you see a death of someone that you care about. You see the characters that you like most jailed or in the most precarious situation they could possibly be in. Everything ramps up to a spot where they cut it and they say, come back next week and we will pay this off for you. And then the goal of the finale is to pay off everything that you have seen that has led you to the high blood pressure and the heart rate and then at the very end drop something new that's like, hey, by the way, all is not that great right now. And then something new, and boom, we're done. We'll see you next year, and we'll pay this one off at the end of next season. Or if it's just something smaller, but that's the cliffhanger, we'll pay this off in the season opener, but please come back. The whole thing is a strategy to get you back, as a roller coaster ride should be in a drama. So the penultimate episode is sometimes the one where the heaviest drama is. And I've always said it's pretty much always where the heaviest drama is. If you're going to shed tears for negative reasons, it's usually coming in the penultimate episode, sometimes the episode right before that. But it's the storm before the calm. It's reversed the way it's done in television. The climax, you know, Harry Potter's at his worst right before he wins. You know, like that's the way books work. The climax is a climax because it's a turning point moment. The climax comes to open that finale, or within the first 30 or 40 minutes in that finale. Then you see reconciliation, and then you see where they're headed for the future, unless it's a series finale, and then you see either Walter White staring at the lights for the final time, or Vic Mackey on the shield looking out the window of his new job as he hears a police siren, or any number of other examples, Jack's eye opening on Lost, for example. That's the way it's done. But a penultimate season is different, because usually when you have a penultimate season, or actually always, if you know you have a penultimate season, then you already know when your end is. When you know when your end is, you are then having to fill the time to get to that finale, the season finale. So the season before, you have to find ways to try and keep it interesting Because you can't kill off your big bad yet. Your big bad's got to be there until the end. That's the ultimate WrestleMania. That's the ultimate payoff. You can't pay off. You can't kill Cersei right now. That's why a character like Euron Greyjoy exists. The Ringer put up an article saying Euron doesn't need to exist. I only skimmed it. But the thing is, Euron doesn't need to exist, but for the world in which a penultimate season needs a secondary villain with which the heroes can take that person out and buy time for the primary villain. In this case, it's Cersei. Cersei's death will be the biggest moment in the history of Game of Thrones. She's been the villain from the pilot, from the very first episode of this show. So she's taking it all the way to the end, and that's when you take her out. It's Bionic Commando. You don't take Hitler out until the end of that video game. You can't take out the big bad until the end. If you do, it's a letdown after that. Or to take it in a completely different direction. When Michael Scott leaves the office two seasons before that show ends, everything else is a letdown. Then he comes back in the finale, and the finale is really good. Cersei Lannister is the opposite of Michael Scott, but she's just as important to Game of Thrones, so you can't kill her off until that final moment. So you have to have somebody else that's causing chaos that can become the fall guy for the primary villain. That is Euron Greyjoy. We've seen him Reign of Terror. We've seen him take Theon's sister. We've seen him killing a lot of people and trying to get into bed with Cersei and causing problems with Jaime Lannister and all of this. This is all designed so that we are deflected away from Cersei Lannister. All the while, Cersei did one of the most vile and savage things we've ever seen her do on this show on Sunday with the woman from Dorne and her favorite daughter. Chaining them up, kissing the daughter with poison lips, and making it so that if they had to even force-feed the mother, they would do it so that she could watch her daughter rot and turn to skull and bones right in front of her in a dungeon where she would never get out of. It was the ultimate payback for the death of her own son, meaning Cersei's. But this was cruel, unusual, and just absolutely evil on every level. We hate Cersei Lannister. We're told to hate Cersei Lannister. There is no Game of Thrones without someone to hate the likes of Cersei Lannister that somehow keeps, you know, crawling through the needle while everybody else dies around her. Because you can't kill Voldemort until Deathly Hallows Part Two, just like you can't kill Cersei Lannister until Season Eight of Game of Thrones in 2019, or 18, rather. So Euron Greyjoy then becomes the one you can kill. He's the one that dies at the end of this season, or maybe he lasts a little bit longer and they kill him off within the first three or four episodes of next year. Or maybe he's there until the end and then he dies. But my guess is he is there to die at the end of this season, probably with a dragon burning him alive. Just a guess. But that's why he exists, and that's why he's necessary to exist, because a penultimate season needs that extra layer that keeps the primary layer protected. Game of Thrones has done penultimate much better than the Americans did this past year. Because the Americans just took away the action and tried to focus on the family. And in some ways it worked, but in a lot of ways it didn't. It provided more of a boring season, a plotting season. It was a setup season. Game of Thrones is also setting up. We're setting up for a couple of big events that will not come until next year. Ice versus fire. Cersei versus Daenerys, Jon Snow, Tyrion, and whoever else joins their cause. And then whatever's to happen after that. There are a few things, but they can't do those things right now. So they're buying time with stuff like Euron Greyjoy. And they're doing a good job of it. And as a result of Euron becoming very entertaining, though a rapscallion doing skullduggery and piracy and everything else... It's just worked for Game of Thrones in a way that I'm not sure that it did for the Americans. Now, the Americans' final season is going to be spectacular because then all bets are off and you can just go. And it's a shorter season. I believe it's 10 episodes. So they can write everything they have left. I said this about Chuck. I'm not sure I said it on the podcast or if I said it on Twitter. One of the reasons Chuck worked so well is because they never had a penultimate season that they knew about. They did not know from episode to episode, how long they were going to last because of their ratings challenges and NBC's flippancy when it comes to that kind of stuff. So they continually had to write fan service and potential endings with every like three or four episodes to make sure if they were cut immediately that they had a conclusion that could work. So as a result, there was a lot to like until they actually got to the finale of that show. The Americans had time to kill, and they killed it. It was still good, but it was not great, in my opinion. Game of Thrones is having to do the same thing, but they are doing it very, very well. The first two episodes of the season, I would give, you know, B, B minus, maybe in that order, and I would suggest this episode was a solid A with moments that were A plus. Like this was a great, great, fun hour of television with some just fantastic one liners from Tyrion. I would say maybe some of his best lines, as a matter of fact. Two, two lines that stand out to me. I trust the eyes of an honest man more than what everybody knows. That's an all-timer. And a wise man said, you should never believe something simply because you want to believe it. And the wise man was him. And he got called out by Danny. Two great lines that you could put on motivational posters in and out of the Game of Thrones universe pretty much forever, and they would work out well. But this entire penultimate season. You can look at all your favorite dramas. If it was a show that knew it had an end game, look at the season before the last season and take a look at what new characters emerged that would disappear from sight pretty early in the final season. And you can point back to the idea that they had time to fill and rather than fill it with the regular characters, they brought somebody else in as a distraction to buy time to keep all of the regular characters in place without actually having to get down to the nitty-gritty between any of them. It's not always true, but you can see it clearly with Euron Greyjoy in Game of Thrones, and you could see it in many other instances throughout television history. So I thought that might be an interesting way maybe to approach this episode from a different perspective. You all watched it. We talked about it on Twitter. I raved about it. You raved about it. There was so much good stuff here. Brand still found a way to not be entertaining to me, but it was still a nice moment. It's not going to be nearly as nice as when Arya finally reunites uh, with Sansa and everything else. I got a tweet from a friend that said, man, can we please kill off Littlefinger? He's creepy. He's necessary as well, because you don't know what side he's on. Another interesting thing that came out was Melisandra, and I had another tweet from a listener from Indiana that talked about Melisandra talking to Davos and Davos saying you have an interesting accent and said maybe that means it's Melisandre that's passing along information to Cersei Lannister because we know someone is we'll have to see whether or not that's true but it's an interesting theory certainly and Melisandre's just sort of meandering around right now but she's still there and it doesn't really make sense anymore why she is unless there's a bigger purpose that's another thing to watch for in tv if a character is just hanging around that doesn't really have a role anymore, keep your eye on that character because something's probably coming from that. So I think that was sort of an adept point. I'm not willing to say, yes, that's true, but I do think that there's a very good possibility that there is truth in that statement. So that's my thoughts on Game of Thrones. Thought it was a really great episode. Makes you excited to see the spoils of war in two days on Sunday night. If you want to see some early photography from that episode, I tweeted it out. HBO sends me that each week, and then I do the same thing. Somehow Siri just started on my iPhone and actually started transcribing everything I was saying. That was freaky. So I'm going to look down at my phone and make sure that doesn't happen anymore. Okay. Let's talk about Suits. Suits is interesting because... Doug Lyman and the folks behind Suits originally had a concept I thought was very good for USA. And this was during the blue sky time. We talked about the blue sky a few weeks ago where there was always a happy ending. Each episode technically had its own little happy ending. There were a few that would not because you were still trying to tie longer stories together. Burn Notice, White Collar, Covert Affairs. Even Monk, but Monk had the one story that went from the first episode to the end, and actually most of these shows do, and then they have minor stories in between. Monk was trying to find out what happened to his wife. Michael Weston was trying to get unburned and then eventually out of the spy game. Neil Caffrey, Peter Burke trying to find their way through the problems that they had had. Neil maybe getting away from crime or maybe going back to crime after everything. Annie and her situation with the CIA, all of these kinds of shows have been this way. And then comes Suits. And Suits has a premise where, from the start to the end, you kind of assumed you knew what was going to happen. You've got Harvey Specter, at Pearson Specter, or I guess Pearson Hardman when it first started, and then they took Daniel Hardman's name off and eventually put Harvey Specter on the wall at the law firm. Harvey Specter, slick lawyer with great suits. Had Lewis Litt there, had Jessica Pearson there. Donna Paulson, Sarah Rafferty, who I find to be one of the most attractive females on the planet. Been in love with her since the day that I saw her on that show. And a great character as well. And then you got Mike Ross. And Mike Ross is a guy who was thrown out of college for cheating, who has a photographic memory, the likes of which you just don't see. Identic to a ridiculous degree. He forgets nothing he reads. He can read quickly. And he's whip smart. But got thrown out of school was on marijuana, was kind of being chased after doing a deal for a friend of his that was just a bad influence on him, and hid out in what turned out to be an interview room at a hotel for this law firm. And he came clean with Spectre when he went into the office and then basically said, I never forget anything I read, and somehow parlayed that into a job at Pearson Hardman where... Basically, Donna knew the secret, Harvey knew the, knew the secret, and Mike Ross knew the secret, and that was it. Later, everyone would find out the secret. I wondered, from the start, whether or not the secret was going to be kept pretty much until the end, whether or not the show was going to end with him being arrested, because that made sense. That was the usual trajectory of a USA Network blue-sky drama. Here's the story that's going to carry us to the end. And then a funny thing happened. He started telling people a lot faster. Peter Parker told everybody he was Spider-Man. Bruce Wayne took the mask off in public, basically, is the effect of what happened. Told his girlfriend, Rachel, Meghan Markle, who, of course, is all over the news these days, for positive reasons, not negative. Tabloid, but just because of who she's associated with in the royal family. Obviously, Louis Litt would find out. Jessica would find out. They would kind of go to the mat for Mike, even though their jobs were all at risk. Mike would eventually give in to save them all and went to jail. He's already gone to jail, and he's already gotten out, and now he's accepted into the bar. show should be over, right? But it's not. The same formula that existed with Suits from the beginning still exists now. This is a show about lawyers and about the law that almost never shows anything inside a courtroom. It's basically a primetime soap opera, but one that's done very well. The Good Wife showed you more in the courtroom, and the cases made much more sense. One thing about Suits that has always been true is if you watch Harvey and Mike and Lewis and all these people associate with their clients, you can get lost in the cases almost immediately. Like, just totally lost, because they're talking about contracts and all of these things you can pay attention to the broad swaths, but if you actually start paying attention to the details, you just it's not that much fun anymore. But that's not what Suits is about. It's about those people. It's about the way in which they interact, the way in which they do their jobs, the way in which they cover for one another, the underhanded nature to which law firms and high-powered law firms exist against one another and even inside their own buildings. It's a fascinating look. Now, is it realistic? Probably not on most levels, but for just good primetime entertainment, Suits has been that. The reviews were not stellar out of the gate, and there are people and critics that I know and like that still use Suits as some kind of joke, even though they haven't watched it in four years. I told you from the outset on How kick the Culture that I would talk about shows I liked that were highbrow, lowbrow, mediumbrow, wherever. Doesn't matter. If it's entertaining and I think you want to hear about it, or I think you should hear about it, then you're damn well going to hear about it on this show. Suits is a show I get a great amount of entertainment out of, even though it's been the same formula since the very beginning. Misunderstandings, conversations that are vague enough that they lead to problems and arguments and yelling and screaming matches and the same music underneath them every single time. But it's slick. It's fast. You still like the characters, all of them just about. And you're rooting for this law firm. Pretty much from start to finish. And it's not ballers in terms of being an easy watch, but it's a watch, you know, I used to watch suits with a couple of good friends. You know, we would actually get together and watch suits. And we'd watch other shows, but suits made that cut. Because suits is a show that if you know people to watch it, you'll talk about it. It's fun. I actually told my mom, who I knew, you know, the kind of shows that she enjoyed, I was like, I think you might like suits. Started watching suits, still watches suits. Suits should not still be around, honestly. Most of these these uh USA shows go you know, five, six years. Suits so still going. And it's been a split season show since the beginning where you get, you know, half a season, then it goes away for three or four months and it comes back into summer with six more episodes. This is the start point of a new season. And I don't know how long it goes, but Gabriel Mock and you know, Patrick Adams and Sarah Rafferty, all the people, Meghan Markle, Rick Hoffman. Everybody associated with the show, they've all stuck with the show. We haven't seen a whole lot of departures. We've seen people come in and they've stuck. But this show's done a really good job of keeping its cast alive. And you know what? USA has done a good job of that through the years. Burn Notice, the four that needed to stay there the entire time were there the entire time. And then they brought in Jesse and he was there until the bitter end. White Collar would not exist without Peter. It would not exist without Neil. It would also not exist without Tiffany Amber Thiessen or the other important characters inside the FBI. Guess what? They were all there until the very bitter end. Covert Affairs, Augie and Annie were there. Annie's sister was there. You know, Augie's other love interest was there. Peter Gallagher was there. Everybody important to that show stuck around. A lot of actors on a lot of shows end up getting tired. Mandy Patinkin a key example of this. Left Chicago Hope left Criminal Minds, somehow is still with Homeland, but it's mainly because finally he's on a show that doesn't need as many episodes. They can tape those things, and then he can go do a stage acting or whatever it is. He's kind of a different cat, for sure, if you've ever you know, read a bio or watched an interview with him. He's, he's a little different, but USA's been able to keep most of their cast together. They've never had a show, though, that hasn't been a Blue Sky show, and while Suits does often end with a happy ending, it ends with a happy ending with a twist almost every time, and a better twist than most of those shows have. It's closer to an actual drama than it is a Blue Sky USA show, and maybe that's why it's still here, and not just here, but still doing great ratings. It felt like when they went to prison, they were running out of ideas, and now it's come back, and it's a lot of fun again, and Mike's out of jail, and the secret's out, and you know now we don't even have that anymore. There's always that point where, man, I wish Peter would tell her he's spider-man no you don't you do but not until the end because once that happens it's over just like man i want jim halpert and pam beasley to get together right now it's five episodes into the first season no you really don't because let me tell you what happens when they get together there's only two options here to continue with them doing anything important you have to create arguments that otherwise wouldn't exist or their story ends Or it's a pregnancy thing. That's pretty much all you got. You actually got some arguments between Jim and Pam because there was nothing else for them to do. Once they got married, it was over. Their stuff was done. Like, yeah, you want them to get get together so bad, but boy, you want it to take a while. Like, you wanted Chuck and Yvonne Strahovski and Chuck to get together, but you wanted it to go for a while before they got there. Same thing with Leonard and Penny on Big Bang, if you want to go a little bit lower brow. Or Robin and Ted before you met Kristen Milioti. Or whatever it is, whatever it might be. You want it, but you actually really just want to keep wanting it. Because that's what keeps you tuned in. So I think that Suits has done an excellent job of continuing to make people want certain things. And then, look, we're getting to Harvey and Donna. We know this. We've known this from the outset of this show. But when they put Mike and Rachel together for good, after they got rid of the I kiss this guy deal, they've kind of left them alone and let them be happy. The only problems they've had is Mike having to go to jail. But they've been in love the whole time. Parks and Rec did this better than any show I've ever seen. When Andy and April got together, for real, like after the like dumb thing that happened with uh Ann, they stuck together and they were happy. They what we saw them do was them in pure joy together, loving each other and working together to have a great life. They did not create manufactured drama between those characters. They let the drama come from elsewhere and let us just have fun with April and Andy. Another Andy, again on the office, one of the dumbest and worst things the office ever did was making us hate Andy and Aaron. That is a pairing that should have been like Andy and April. We didn't need what we ended up getting from those two characters on The Office, where they were in arguments, or they would have misunderstandings constantly, or other people would get in the way, or they would both be arrogant at different times, or they'd both be too dumb at different times. That stuff did not need to exist, but it did. I don't know that they learned their lesson from that and got it right the next time, But April and Andy was such a better way to do it. And so many shows feel the need to manufacture drama because they can't find it elsewhere. If you need to manufacture drama between a couple that you've put together on the show, don't put them together that fast. Wait until the end, put them together so that they can just be happy. There are way too many examples in television and increasingly in life, it seems like, because it's all you hear about on television of marriages that are failing of people having affairs, of people stepping out on their significant others, of constant arguments, of abuse, and all these kinds of things. My parents have been married, and that's never happened with them. They had a bad marriage each before they found each other. But it's okay to depict marriage as something that can last and love that actually can endure. One of the reasons I loved Parks and Rec Is because once couples got together on that show, by and large, couples stayed together on that show. There was a heart behind Parks and Rec that you don't find elsewhere. And it wasn't in every character because that's not exactly how life works. But April and Andy, Ben and Leslie note two prime examples on that show where when those folks got together for good, after an initial problem, they were good forever. And it wasn't just because of, and it didn't just relegate itself to, well, they're going to have a baby now, and that's going to become their storyline. It's like they ran out of stuff on The Office for Jim and Pam to do. It's one of the reasons, among many, why The Office did not rank higher on my comedy list. I could only get it to nine. When it was great, it was as good as we've ever seen. But there was way too much stuff in the middle and towards the end where they were just trying to stay afloat and had run out of good ideas, so they found ways to make it cringeworthy in non-natural ways, in artificial ways. So that's something to think about. And Suits, like I said, Mike and Rachel have generally been happy. They've had problems, but not amongst themselves. That's another key. There can always be extenuating factors that can change things. But Suits is still going strong. At ATX, they did a cast read where most of the cast was down there. I saw some of them. I wasn't able to attend it because I was at another panel. But it was one of the most attended events of that entire weekend. The the entire Paramount Theater was sold out on a Sunday afternoon for that table read. Paramount Theater was not really packed throughout much of the weekend in the events that was there because it's a big place. Not for this. Everybody was there for Suits. So the critics and the highbrows can act like Suits is, you know, throwaway or not up to the level of something that they should cover or talk about. That's not the case on Outkick the Culture. When I feel like it's worth talking about, by God, we're going to talk about it because that's just the way it should be. Suits is a show that right now demands your attention. If you have not watched it, try to find it. I think you'll enjoy it. Is it going to win Academy Awards? No. Does it need to win Academy Awards? No. Not everything does. Same thing we said about Ballers, who had a really bad episode on Sunday night, especially the monster truck scene. But I digress. Suits is entertaining. It's pulpy. It's in some ways a nighttime soap opera. But it's a pretty smart show. And it's slick. And it moves well. And there have been some big-name actors and some people you recognize from other places, Game of Thrones, The Wire, to name a couple, that should interest you, quite frankly. And they've added Dulé Hill from Psych to West Wing and love Dulé Hill, and I think he's going to fit in beautifully. He's already he's already got that same kind of sense of humor that Mocked and Adams have when they're on screen together. The movie references, the sarcasm, all of that. And then you need a lovable loser a lovable villain and that's what you get in rick hoffman's lewis lit who might be the best character on the entire show but there's a lot to like about suits you should watch suits that's basically what i'm getting at now let's head to netflix and a show that i don't know how many of you have actually seen i don't know how many of you saw the original film 2001 uh wet hot american summer the name of that it became a cult classic and the thing about cult classics is You either get it or you don't. It's a cult classic because it's not a widespread appeal thing. It's something that has found an audience, usually a smaller audience, but a very passionate audience. There have been many such examples of things that have just become cult classics that weren't supposed to be. Starship Troopers would be an example of one. I'm not sure that's actually discussed as a cult classic, but I've always seen it as such. I couldn't stand it, but a lot of people swear by it. Richard Linklater who directed Boyhood and A Scanner Darkly, and he's one of my favorite directors, did Days and Confused, which is a film that I've seen maybe more than just about any in my lifetime, certainly probably in the top 10. And a funny story, I went and saw that with my mom, because I heard, wow, this is going to be an Academy Award contender. Mom, let's go see this. Had no idea what we were in for at that point, because I was still in high school and just didn't know. And ended up, you know, mom was a little bit upset that we ended up in the theater and you know, she's kind of embarrassed that I'm seeing all this marijuana usage and all this stuff, but it was fine. Ended up buying the soundtrack like a week later, one of the great soundtracks. You know this. If you're listening to this and you're around my age, you remember Slow Ride and Fog Hat and Tuesday's Gone, Leonard Skinner and Cherry Bomb and um, Stranglehold and all of that stuff. Just a fantastic rock and roll hoochie coup and School's Out. I could just keep going. But Linklater's first film is called Slacker. Slacker, I went back and watched years after I saw Days to Confuse. I was like, oh great. This is kind of like where Days to Confuse came from. Here's Slacker. And so I check out Slacker. Slacker's a cult classic. I knew that. I heard about it. Oh, I'm gonna love this. I didn't like it. And I've tried to watch it twice, and I still don't like it. Just didn't get it. So sometimes cult classics work and sometimes they don't, depends on who you are. Wet Hot American Summer is another example of that. It's a love or hate proposition. I do not know a single person out there that has watched either the film or First Day at Camp, which came out two years ago on Netflix in the summer, eight-episode series, and feels wishy-washy about it. It's like, you know what, it's all right. I've never, ever, ever met anyone that has any opinion but an extreme, if they've seen it. What it has going for it is a just absurd cast of talented comics and especially improv artists. Just listen to this list, and this is just from the 10 years later. Now, Bradley Cooper was in the original movie, and he was in First Day at Camp, but because of scheduling conflicts, he had to be replaced, but he was replaced by somebody really good, and you're going to like it. I'm not going to spoil that for you if you haven't seen it, but it's really cool. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. But here's a list. I'm just going to run this down. This is straight off of Wikipedia. It's just easier than me having to write it down or remember it all. Elizabeth Banks, Michael Ian Black, Janine Garofalo, Joe Latruglio, Ken Marino, Christopher Maloney, A.D. Miles, Marguerite Moreau, Zach Orth, Amy Poehler, Paul Rudd, Marissa Ryan, Molly Shannon, Michael Showalter, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, Josh Charles, Lake Bell, Jason Schwartzman, H. John Benjamin, David Hyde Pierce, Sam Levine, John Early, Rich Sommer, Eric Nenninger, Nina Hellman, Beth Dover, and David Wayne, who created it, along with... Mr. Showalter, Michael Showalter, who plays Coop Cooperberg in uh, the film, and then again Bradley Cooper, and who was added to the list for this season: Mark Firestein, Alyssa Milano, Jai Courtney, Dax Shepard. Those are just some names. Others: oh, Marlo Thomas, and there's one other one again that's replacing Bradley Cooper, that I'm not going to reveal in case you're interested in seeing that. You'll find out within the first five minutes who it is, and it's awesome. He's from Parks and Rec. I'll leave it at that. This is straight satire. This is straight slapstick. This is straight juvenile. This is inappropriate. This is campy. It's overacted, but it's fun. It's so dumb. I mean, if you watched first day at camp or first day of camp, I keep saying at It's first day of camp, you realize that H. John Benjamin's character was turned into a can of mixed vegetables. And then that can stays alive and talks. Well, in this series, it also talks and it also bones. I'll just kind of leave it right there. But there's a scene of an actual human woman and the can is behind him. And yes, that's what we're looking at here. The names that I just mentioned, you know, some of them, you know, from big budget films, some of them you don't know as well. Like if I say Joe Latruglio, there's a lot of people out there that don't know who I'm talking about. Well, he's Boyle on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Does that help you? He's one of the founding members of the state, which is as good a sketch comedy team as we've ever seen. Hopefully that helps you. How about Ken Marino? Ken Marino was in Veronica Mars. He was also in Party Down. He was, he was definitely on some Rob Thomas shows, to be sure. Hopefully that helps you a little bit with Ken Marino. He was also a founding member of the state. If you recall the skit, I want to dip my balls in it, he was the guy who wanted to dip his balls in it. He is absolutely hilarious and is tremendous in Wet Hot American Summer as a guy that talks up how much sex he has, but in actuality is a virgin. Uh, Michael Ian Black, another founding member of, yes, the state, and Kerry Kinney, who is not really in this show, has appeared in this show before. So there's been all sorts of state remnants across this. Of course, you've got Amy Poehler and Janine Garofalo, who at least had a cup of coffee. On Saturday Night Live, Amy Poehler, famous for Saturday Night Live and Parks and Recreation, which may have made it easier to get who they ended up getting to replace Bradley Cooper. Paul Rudd's a big star, but he's been around from the beginning. Molly Shannon, another SNL veteran. These are people that are just hilarious. These are people that are absolutely funny, quick, and I don't know, but without going into too much detail there's no question a lot of this is improv and a lot of this is just the talent of the people involved because there's just too much improv talent for it all to be on script the show was set in 1991 and the plan was to kind of make it look like some cross between like saint elmo's fire and the big chill or something to that effect a lot of it has to do with sex and romance it does there's no question about that but there are fart jokes and there are guys duking themselves yes that's a word that i just chose to use for some reason there's all sorts of just stupid stuff just so dumb and then stuff that's so outlandishly over the top like in the movie where we see heroin being shot when they're you know out on a on a pathway in a truck like there's just so much stuff that is ridiculous about this show if you don't turn your brain off completely You cannot enjoy Wet Hot American Summer. But if you can, and if you can just shut the hell up, stop thinking, and just enjoy what it is, it really is a joy to watch. I'm not going as far to say it's some A-plus show. It's not going to win a bunch of awards. But you like all of the people in this show. There's so much talent around it. Even the characters that are sort of prickish, and there aren't that many, but the few that are, you still like these people you want to spend time with them they're entertaining to you the thing about what hot american summer at least for me always has been i like watching these people and watching them do their thing and have fun doing it more so than i do the story which is patently absurd and always has been because they've always added this like government component with show walter playing reagan and this year they add george bush and you know it's it's, it's sort of tacked on, but it's just kind of the underlying thing. It's almost like Stranger Things in terms of just adding a little bit of a series component to the story so that we're not just watching these people interact, even though if we did, I think it would be good. Christopher Maloney, whose character I did not care for as much as some, has grown on me a lot. I thought he was fantastic in 10 years later. This, of the three, I enjoyed this better than the movie, and I enjoyed this better than First Day of Camp. Now, I don't think that I am the evangelist for this show the way that many other folks might be, but this was a solid B- for me somewhere in that neighborhood. I really did enjoy it. I binged all of it in a day um, in advance of the release today, this morning. My print review is actually going to be out a little bit later this afternoon. I've had things on my plate this week and haven't been able to write as much as I would have liked, but you'll see that at OutKick. And, of course, we're talking about it right here. But it's eight episodes. They're half an hour long. Another thing is a lot of the episodes this time around, they're shorter. You know, there's a 23-minute, a 24-minute. I talked about friends with college or friends from college last week and said if those episodes were not 30 to 34 minutes, they'd be better off. First day of camp, I thought many of those episodes were too long. These are not quite as long, and thus it moves at a better clip. And because it's not quite as retro, it's easier to kind of just jump into – And there's, you know, Paul Rudd playing his Andy character is still really, really funny. And there's all of the stuff that you liked about this show is still good. Lake Bell is back, obviously, and her Donna character is just pretty much flat out absurd. David Wayne, who plays Yaron, he, the Yaron character is sort of a foil to get in the way of Michael Showalter and kind of always has been because Michael Showalter is the one that you really root for. But it's funny that the two guys that are behind this are the ones that are kind of competing for Lake Bell's affections at different times. And then now you actually see Michael Showalter in a different situation with other people on the show, other females on the show that have grown to like him that go back to the movie. Because, again, the series was a prequel to the movie, the original series. This is a sequel 10 years after the movie. What's most ridiculous about this is the premise in general, which is they were junior campers for one year at this... Camp Firewood. And they act like it's the only thing they've ever done in their life. That there's nothing else. There's a, obviously there's stuff between uh Camp Firewood and Camp Tiger Claw, which is this aristocratic camp with caviar and wine and Kristen Wig playing a harp and there's it, this is just this is absurdist comedy slapstick at its best if you like stuff like the naked gun and airplane and you just angie tribeca and stuff like that there's some of that to be found here there's some slapstick stuff and there is definitely some very lowbrow humor to be found but these people are just so damn funny that you can watch this thing fast it's eight episodes you watch it in less than four hours grab a pop grab a beer you know grab some wine grab some liquor or something like that and watch it with a couple of friends i think you'll laugh your ass off I think you could do a lot worse this weekend than watching Wet Hot American Summer 10 years later. If you haven't watched the other stuff, watch that first. You won't appreciate this if you have not watched what came before it. But it, it's this may be the end for this experiment, not just because it's hard to get all these people back together because it seems like they all really enjoy it and all seem to come back. Cooper probably is upset that he could not do it. He was great as Ben in both the movie and the original series, but... I don't know how much more there is to tell now. You've done a prequel, you've done the show, or you've done the movie, and you've done this sequel. Maybe you can go back and tell like a half prequel or half sequel. I think maybe this is probably the time to let it go because they've ended on the highest note I think that they've had of the three efforts. So I I did. I I enjoyed this a lot. I'm curious to get your thoughts if you have seen it. So you can tweet me at jmartoutkick. Let me know. You can email me at jmartclone at gmail.com, and you can talk to me about it there as well. Now in an impromptu move, I want to discuss Rick and Morty, which came back to Adult Swim this past week. There was kind of a half episode a few months ago that leaked out, but this was sort of the beginning of the season, even though it's really the second episode of the third year. And it's another animated show, which is going to turn off some folks who need to get a grip and realize that some of the best stuff that's come around the pipe on TV is coming from unfamiliar sources. Bojack Horseman returns with episodes in September. That's one of the top five shows on TV of any classification. Certainly in season two and season three, it was. And here's Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is as dark a show as exists on TV. Hey, so is Bojack. Rick and Morty has some sophomoric stuff to it, you know, like the farting out of the coffee cups and stuff like that. But in general, and if you read about Rick and Morty and you can find article after article about this, it's a show that bases itself in existentialism and nihilism. Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon, who of course you know from Community, the latter there, those two guys created it. Animated show about a grandfather that is not really based on Dr. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future, but that's pretty much what it feels like. And Morty, you know, Rick and Morty, Doc Brown and Marty. Morty was, at least originally, was kind of portrayed as sort of a slower kid, but he's kind of sensed that's dropped to some extent. Not entirely, but Morty's not the idiot that Morty was originally. He now knows what his grandfather is up to, which is going across universes and dimensions on adventures, often as a pirate to steal things or cause trouble. And then you take that half of the show, and then there's Morty's family and the family drama that goes in with a marriage that is very, very either off and on or right now completely off, a sister that's sort of out of her mind and selfish and all that. So you have these two things going on together. But if there's one really good description of Rick and Morty, it comes from Morty, who actually quoted in an episode called Ricksty Minutes, which was in season one, I think it was episode eight. He says, and you have you may have seen somebody wearing a t-shirt that says this and didn't know what it came from. This is where it came from. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's going to die. Come watch TV. That is not like, it, it's not as bleak as it sounds in terms of, it's not like making fun of TV. It's basically saying you might as well enjoy yourself because you have so little control over anything. I'm reading this from splitsider.com now, which is a good place to go if you want to read about things going on in comedy, both in television film as well as, you know, in stand up and things like that. But I think that this is really interesting the way this is put by Phil Stamato, a uh, writer for them who lives in New York. This episode, meaning Rick's Minutes, of Rick and Morty isn't overly optimistic but when i'm overwhelmed by the nightmares of this past year i find morty's philosophy to be an effective antidote there is a kind of pain to realizing that it's impossible to expect fairness from the world because it's impossible to expect anything from the world indeed virtually everything about any circumstance is completely absurd in view of the whole so when the world seems to be reaching peak absurdity it's helpful to simply take stock in what you enjoy and build from there that should be on the back of the dvd case i own both seasons you know what like i have them on my dvr i have from the beginning it's on hulu if you want to watch some of the old the earlier episodes the entire thing is there for you but i also bought these blu-rays when they came out i wanted it to look the best it could i wanted the extras i wanted the curse words in there this is a show that meant something to me. I actually bought two Funko Pops as well. I bought the original Rick and the original Morty Funko Pops. They're on my bookshelf right now in my office. This show is great. And, you know, it's got aliens in it and portal guns and all sorts of stuff like that. But mixed around it, and they also have parody stuff. Like, they've gone to Mad Max now and gone Fury Road route over this last... Uh, actually, I did it here in this last episode. But mixed around it is... Thoughts of death and suicide and divorce and heartache and pain and feeling useless and meaningless. And the idea of Rick and Morty, there's an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of Rick's and an infinite number of Morty's. And they're sort of the two things that kind of tie everything in the world together. There's a council of Rick's and they sort of control the world behind the scenes. But it's sort of the idea of how insignificant you are and that Stuff like, hey, just go watch TV, that's something you can control. You can enjoy yourself for a short period of time around this universe that could spiral out of control and put, for example, someone that you don't like in the White House. And I'm not speaking about the current inhabitant or the past inhabitant. I'm speaking more just metaphorically out in the ether. There are things in this world that are going to upset you pretty much every single day. So, when you have an opportunity to find something that brings you joy, you do that. For Rick, it is doing the stuff that he's doing across the universe and doing it with his grandson and now with his granddaughter. And, you know, he still likes his daughter as well, but it's more about her kids and specifically Morty because of the importance of Morty to the rest of the Rick and Morty universe. So, there's nihilism here, there's existentialism here. There's so much going on behind the scenes of these 21-minute episodes. Dan Harmon, at one point, said that the series was a cross between The Simpsons and Futurama. Balancing family life with heavy science fiction. That's actually from Wikipedia, but he has said that on a number of different things. Dan Harmon has also said that you can start this show anywhere. This is something that I said we were going to talk about, about whether or not you could get into certain shows after the early seasons that maybe weren't as good and still enjoy them to the full extent. Rick and Morty, you could pick up any episode and you can watch Rick and Morty. I would suggest you watch it from the beginning because there is a story here, especially towards the end of the second season where they finished the year with Nine Inch Nails hurt as Rick had to make a what at the time looked like a selfless decision to extricate himself from Morty's family because of the damage he was doing to all of them. Turned out that was not the case because Rick Sanchez is Rick Sanchez, but it kind of gets to the heart of it. You can watch it. You could just start right now and watch it and you would enjoy it, but you would not get anywhere near what you should get out of it if you watched it from the beginning. So Rick and Morty is back. You should put it on your DVR. If you have not watched, go to Hulu and watch what's already out there or go to the on-demand that you have with your television service. You can probably watch a good bit of it there. It is worth your time. It is dark despite being animated. The way that they utilize the characters sometimes is very sophomoric, but at the same time, there is so much depth behind this show that that's the reason why it's endured. That's the reason why if you go to Atlanta right now, And you go into one CNN center, into that Turner building, and you get towards the store. You're going to see a giant Rick Sanchez holding a bottle of liquor, drunk, sitting on the bench that you can then sit next to. I know that because I sat next to that Rick statue a couple of years ago. This show has become, it's not a cult classic, this show is becoming a serious, serious contender for something that most people are interested in watching that know anything about it. And it's helping to change the perception of animated programming, along with BoJack Horseman. These are the two shows that stand out above the rest. There are others. I think Archer goes for the lowbrow too often, but Archer certainly has been very good a lot of the time. There are other examples, even other Adult Swim shows through the years, but nothing with the level of depth that we've seen from Rick and Morty, no question. And certainly BoJack Horseman in that same manner. So those are things to pay attention to. Watch Rick and Morty. This season was great. This episode from this past week was just special stuff. It gets an A for me. Really good. And again, just wicked smart from start to finish. So watch that. Can you watch The Leftovers and start at the beginning of season two? Can you watch Better Call Saul And skip the first six episodes and get into it there. Can you watch Top of the Lake Season 2 without watching Top of the Lake Season 1? Which, by the way, you should. And Top of the Lake Season 2 with Elizabeth Moss will be back next month on Sundance. And I think the first six episodes, the original six, are on Netflix. Great show. Yes, you can. In pretty much every example. You could watch The Leftovers from Season 2 on. I wouldn't advise it because you wouldn't care about the characters enough. The thing about season one of The Leftovers, whatever people want to say about it, is that you got to know who these people were and you saw the infancy of who they were. Sons of Anarchy didn't become Sons of Anarchy until about midway through season one when Kurt Sutter finally convinced FX to let him write the show he wanted, which was not one where each episode could run in any order. Some shows it takes time to develop that. Some shows, even Chuck on NBC, when it was on early, it seemed like all those were standalones. And then all of a sudden that story became the focus. And then that show really ramped up and became more than just throwaway fun. It became indispensably good television. It doesn't all have to be serialized to be great TV. It doesn't. A good balance really does work. But in the case of a show like The Leftovers, where so much of it is cerebral and thinking and watching and emoting along with these characters my question is why you would want to rob yourself of such a thing when you don't have to if you're going to watch season two and season three what's the difference watch season one and there's also the argument of hey if you skip season two of friday night lights how much more would you enjoy the show season two was a little bit off the beaten path i actually enjoyed it but yeah there was some dumb stuff in season two stuff that didn't make sense that Everything else in the show logically worked. And then in season two, you've got, you know, Tyra nearly killed and Landry killing somebody in a parking lot. And it just got out of hand. Sure you could, but why would you? I guess I'm a fanatical completionist in that I have to watch from beginning to end. I can't just pick it up in the middle. Now I can watch like an episode of Rules of Engagement comes on on a Saturday night. I've never watched very many episodes of that show. I can watch that. I can look at Megan Price, who I've been in love with since Grounded for Life. Or, you know, whatever else is going on that show. I can laugh at Patrick Warburton or David Spade for a couple of minutes. Like, that's different. But a show where I'm really trying to invest in the story, I don't know why you would rob yourself of the full experience. Another great example is a show that's coming back in a couple of weeks on AMC. Another one of the best shows on TV that no one has watched, Halt and Catch Fire. Season one of Halt and Catch Fire, especially the first, like, seven episodes, Take it or leave it, quite frankly. I liked the characters, so I watched. But And it was more that I, I enjoyed what that show was about, so I gave it more of the benefit of the doubt. And by the end of season one, it got really good. Season two was special. I wrote on it for Outkick.com as well as for Previously.TV. Season three was magnificent and made my top ten last year. This will be the final year of Halt and Catch Fire. The rest of Halt and Catch Fire is available on Netflix for you right now. Yes, you could easily start Halt and Catch Fire in Season 2. But again, why would you? If you are interested enough to see what's happening in this show and watch it from this point to the end, why not watch it from the start point to the end? I just don't know why you'd rob yourself of that experience. Maybe it makes sense on some levels, it just doesn't make sense to me. Matt Damon always gets bumped off the Jimmy Kimmel show. That was a running joke for a long time. Always enjoyed it. When Matt Damon finally hosted the show and tied up Jimmy Kimmel. Very, very funny stuff. It seems like we have our own version of that. With this question that was asked a few weeks ago by one of our listeners that asked me to compare and contrast David Fincher with Christopher Nolan. I'm going to tease it again and say we're going to get to it next week. And I know the person that asked that question is now rolling their eyes because they tweeted me in all caps and said, please answer that question this week. I just looked up at the screen. I know we're about an hour in. That's about kind of where I want to be most weeks because you go too long with the podcast, nobody gets to the end. And I think we've covered a lot of ground today with Game of Thrones and with Suits and with Wet Hot American Summer and just now with Rick and Morty. So I'm going to leave it there, but we are going to talk this Venture nolan thing next week. I know, believe it when you see it, right? Especially after I just referenced that Matt Damon thing and talked about how much I liked it. So, we'll get to it. You can just decide whether or not I have my fingers crossed as I say that behind my back. Trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to hit on this week. Not really. There's still a lot of good TV. Another thing that did start this week, Paul Bettany playing Unabomber in Manhunt on Discovery. That's really good stuff. I would probably invest some time in that if I were you. Definitely worth your time, uh, especially if you like stuff that's based on truth. You will enjoy the way in which that story is told, I think. I don't know that's it's going to change your world, but certainly something to be seen. The Defenders, Marvel's The Defenders, I believe I'm going to get a look at that this coming week. So I should be able to talk more about it. I'll be writing about it for Outkick.com. Mind Hunters, which David Fincher is behind, which is about serial killers, kind of true stories and things like that. A lot of very, very talented people associated with that project is coming to Netflix in October. Looking forward to discussing more of that with you. The Tara Grinstead case, which was covered on the Up and Vanished podcast, which is host by, hosted by Payne Lindsay, is something I picked up. I downloaded some true crime stuff about a week ago, Sword and Scale and undisclosed, and criminal, and my favorite murderer, and all of these things. And I, I like them all. But Up and Vanish is the closest to serial, and it's one case, and it's something that this podcast was done fairly recently. The professionalism in it is very, very well done. I've seen a couple of documentaries that I've been able to set the DVR for that I haven't watched, because I'm going through Up and Vanished first. But... If you liked Serial, particularly season one of Serial, the Tara Grinstead case, I don't know how I didn't know about it, but I did not have any idea about it, despite how much media attention it got. The Up and Vanish podcast is worth your time. It's definitely something you should check out if you like Serial. The episodes are nowhere near as long. Generally, the episodes are somewhere around like 24 minutes, somewhere in that neighborhood. I guess the serial episodes weren't always that long either. There's also some case evidence stuff where they'll do like an eight minute podcast in between two episodes where they'll just go through the facts uh, and go through the evidence and explain things in different ways. But the access and the people that are associated with this show out of Georgia, out of Atlanta have done a fantastic job. It's been going on now for a while, but I just discovered it. So I'm going to talk about it as if it just happened. This is the whole Jim Gaffigan argument from his first special, which was still my favorite of his, when he's talking about when you see a movie that's like 15 years old and you want to discuss it and you're just like, hey, I just saw Heat. And everybody's like, yeah, that movie came out 12 years ago. And you're like, yeah, but I just saw it and I want to discuss it now. That's like how I feel about Up and Vanished. I'm I'm very late to this party, but I'm glad that I found the party and apparently they let me in the door and I was dressed appropriately and now I'm dancing with a pretty hot chick. So Up and Vanished is definitely worth your time if you're into true crime. Uh, It's an easy listen. It's something you can listen to if you have any kind of a road trip. Hopefully this podcast is part of that uh, list as well for you. But definitely Up and Vanished, something to check out. So I wanted to throw that out uh, in the final moments here. So Rick and Morty, check it out. Suits, if you like, just pure entertainment. I'm not saying every – it's not going to win Academy Awards. It's not going to win Emmys. I mean, obviously it's not going to win Academy Awards. But – It's not an award show. It's just a fun show. talked about Ballers last week. Suits is another example of that. Higher end to me than Ballers. But Suits is just a show you can enjoy. And you should. We should enjoy things in this life. And I talked about Rick and Morty, which is a show you can enjoy despite how heavy it is and how it's about nihilism, existentialism, and nothingness. And then Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones discussion that led us into penultimate. I want you to give me examples. Add jmartoutkick on Twitter. jmartclone at gmail.com. Of penultimate seasons of shows that didn't work for you or penultimate episodes of your favorite dramas where you can look at the philosophy that I laid out for you. These theories and these theses that I've laid out for you and see what I'm saying and understand maybe why these shows lay out the way they do in the next to last episode and in the next to last season. I think that's an interesting discussion and i look forward to your examples i gave you a few but you guys always blow me away with some of the stuff that you come up with so i look forward to that also look forward to talking to you all on monday on outkick the coverage as i'll be in for one more day with jeff schwartz before clay comes back from costa rica i look forward to talking to you all next friday right here again on outkick the culture again if you're a sponsor out there listening hey look these numbers are good i would love to take your money and hawk your product and use your product And finally, I was on a podcast doing an interview on sports media and, well, it ended up being on television and all sorts of other things. It was the Cover 32 podcast and ended up, you know, I thought maybe do 30 minutes. Turned out not to be 30 minutes. Uh, turned out to be much more than 30 minutes. Turned out to be more like an hour and 10 minutes, but a lot of people really, really enjoyed it. It was Bobby Burak. He's a, just a college, a young college kid that's trying to get ahead of the game before he gets out of school. So we joined this cover 32 upstart group that there's a podcast for each team in the NFL. And but most of our stuff was about the media. So if you like Outkick, I talked a lot about how we do Outkick the coverage, how our brand works, what differentiates us from other folks in the space. And then we talked some leftovers, some Game of Thrones, even some Pro Wrestling, some John Jones, some Brock Lesnar, some UFC had a good time with Bobby, so if you uh, have a chance, I've tweeted it out from my account, but if you just subscribe or look at the Cover 32 podcast, I'm one of the latest episodes, so if that interests you, apologies for the audio quality. We were just having an awful time trying to get it recorded and cell phones and Skype and all sorts of drop-offs and all those kinds of things. It happens, but it's, it's, it's audible. You can hear it. Not as clear, certainly, as this is. But it's worth uh, I, I think it's I think you'll enjoy it if you like hearing from me, and obviously you would. My voice is like butter, right? I think you've heard enough of it for this week. I'll talk to you next week. I'll kick the culture. Dunzo, see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.